Now, guys, back to um, back to John five. <clears throat> Let's um, uh, get back to work, guys. Um, tonight, um, not every Wednesday night, but this particular Wednesday night. Um, if you have not taken my systematics class, you are going to be somewhat at a disadvantage. Um, if you have taken the class, you, that means you will be somewhat advantaged. Because I think you'll see these things because we certainly discussed them in the systematics class. But just, just for my idle curiosity, how, how many of you have been in that systematics class Holy moly. Uh, well, we have plenty of advantage, um, don't we? All right, guys, here's what I'm saying. If you'll go to um, John 5, um, I'm suggesting that John 5, the miracle of John 5 that, that opens up John 5, is, um, is a passage of Scripture that um, raises for us some very rich theological questions. It poses some questions for us, and I'm gonna, and then it gives us some answers for those questions. At least I, I think it does. And uh, so w let me show you five, five questions. Number one: What does everybody around this pool at Bethesda have in common? You know, you, you see in verse 3, they're, they're blind and lame and <clears throat> paralyzed. So what is it that all of these people have in common? The thing that they have in common is that they are all marked by inability. Um, this is a picture of unregenerate man in his inability. Um, <clears throat> all of these diseases and illnesses that you see there are things that have rendered the subjects incapable. Now, um, one of the things that people like to say about people like me, that is, people of my theological stripe, they, they like to suggest that my camp, theologically, does not believe that man has a free will. Well, that's not true. I believe that firmly. But you see, here's what I believe. That man is free to do what he wants to do. But he's not free to do what he ought to do. He's not able to do what he ought to do because sin has rendered him an invalid. In fact, the word that you may recall is the word dead. That man is dead in his trespasses. Unregenerate man is dead in his trespasses and sins. Do you remember the big deal I make out of that? Guys, um, there's an interesting little text in Mark chapter 9. Excuse me, not Mark, Luke chapter 9. Uh, you might want to turn to it, but I mean, you've heard it before. 
um, Mark chapter 9, verse 60. 60 verses or more. In, um, and it says this. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. Now, what in the world does that mean? Let the dead bury their own dead. Now, wait a minute. If you're dead, <coughs> excuse me, physically, you certainly can't dig a hole to throw in a corpse. But that's not what Jesus has in mind. He is saying, let the spiritually dead bury their own dead, the physical ones. That's what the people around the pool at Bethesda have in common. Spiritually, they have been rendered dead by sin. All of unregenerate men, all unregenerate men. And in fact, we regenerate. You know what regenerate means, don't you? That is prior to the regeneration, prior to the rebirth, prior to being born again. Prior to being born again, man is incapable. He is marked with inability. He is dead in his trespasses and sins. Well, that's the first thing that you can see that grows out of this, this, this miracle. And you see it there. You see a large crowd of people gathered around and they all have one thing in common. Their diseases might be different, but they've all been rendered incapable. They're free to do what they want to do. But they're not free to do what they ought to do. What they ought to do is see their sin and call out in, in faith to Christ. But they can't do that. Because they're incapable. They're invalids. They're spiritually dead. That's the first question, I think, that's posed and answered by this miracle. Here's the second one. I wonder if you've ever thought about this. This pool is surrounded or is um, populated with a lot of ill people. But Jesus only heals one. <laughs> Why? Or let me ask it a little bit different. Why does he heal this one? And not that one? Or that one over there? Or the one who had been there 41 years? Why, why, why this one? Now, gang, <clears throat> there, are, there is within us, I think, and I think it's kind of a, a natural inclination to believe that God is somehow required to heal them all. Is he? Is he required to heal them all? Gang, we, we've been going through this parable on Sunday mornings in Matthew chapter 20. You remember the guys that started at 6 a.m. and then 9 a.m. and then 12 o'clock and then 3 o'clock and then 5 o'clock? Remember that? And, and the 12-hour the guys are really upset with the master because, um, you know, they didn't get what they thought they deserved. And um, they, they come and, and they complain to the master about uh, how they've been treated. And, and the master, the, the owner of, of it all, 
replies like this. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Well, is he or is he not allowed to do as he pleases with what belongs to him? Folks, has not God the right to dispense his mercy as he seems best, as it seems best to himself? This is how Piper says it. God has the right and the power to do what makes him happy. Now, folks, if God is obligated to heal all of these unregenerate or to save all of these unregenerate, then think with me, ladies and gentlemen. If God is obligated to do that, as is the persuasion of some, then we are no longer talking about grace and mercy. You can stop all your conversations about God displaying mercy and grace. You can stop because what you need to be talking about is his duty. You've moved from the realm of grace and mercy. You've moved over to the realm of duty. It is God's duty. God is obligated to do what he did for this one invalid for everybody. But that's not what you see in this miracle. Guys, there is nothing in this story that singled this invalid out from the rest of the sick people. He did not cry out. He did not say, oh, Jesus of Nazareth, son of David, would you have mercy on me? In fact, ladies and gentlemen, Jesus makes the first move. Jesus speaks first. Now, if you're at John 5, flip over to John 4 real fast. You know this, um, you know this text too. It's verse 34. And <clears throat> pardon me, Jesus says, my food, in fact, the King James is my meat and my drink. But my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. My mission, says Jesus, is to do the will of the one who sent me. That, of course, is his father. You, you, you can see that, surely. So I am here, says Jesus, to do the will of my father. My meat and my drink is to do the will of my father. Okay, if that's true, which it apparently is, if that is true, then Jesus is doing the will of the Father right now in John 5. He is doing the will of the Father by going to one of the numerous invalids that lie around that pool. Um, apparently it is not the will of the Father to heal everybody around that pool. 
Because if it were the will of the Father, that's what he'd be doing. But he's not doing that. All those people out there. He goes to one. Folks, you may not find this comfortable at this moment. But let me say it again. God is not obligated. He is not bound to give his mercy to everyone or to anyone. If he is bound, then stop talking about mercy. He doesn't display mercy. He's just doing his duty. A duty that I would suggest you gave him. Because here, you see the son doing the will of the father. And the will of the father is to save this one invalid. I want to read you, um, in fact, if, if you can find this real fast, it's really wonderful. It's in Psalm 33. Uh, it's just a brief statement of uh, just the beauty of the sovereign God. Um, um, Psalm 33, beginning at verse 10. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people... whom he has chosen as his heritage. Folks, Psalm 33 is a hymn. It's a hymn to the God who made everything. It says that in verse 9, for he spoke and it came to be, he commanded and it stood firm. That's a reference to God's created fiat. Um, this is a hymn celebrating this God. The God who made, and then the God who governs. He brings all the plans of men to nothing. All the, uh, the conflab of the peoples to naught. But he, um, he governs all things, and he governs all things according to what? Look at the text, ladies and gentlemen. This is where we get our notions not from out of the way, out of the air. He governs all things according to the counsel and the plans of his heart. And do you know what the counsel and the plans of his heart include? <laughs> Noel, 
this God has chosen a people. A people that He wants to use to proclaim and declare His righteousness to the ends of the earth. Okay, back to the miracle. Here's my, um, here's my third question. How does Jesus know which invalid to go to? Um, you know, they got a lot of invalids around there. How does, he, uh, how does he pick out which one is the one that he's supposed to go get? Jesus goes straight to him and nobody else. Um, well, folks, here's the answer to that question. Because the son and the father are on the same page. Um, Jesus' efforts are in line with the will that he has gotten from his father. That's what he came to do and accomplish, and he did accomplish it. Jesus is not up to something that the Father isn't. What he's up to is what the Father directed according to the counsel and the plans of his own will. Um... Jesus is not here, ladies and gentlemen, doing his own thing. Jesus is here because he's accomplishing the will of his Father. And the will of his Father was to save one of those invalids around that pool. Okay, here's the third question, uh, fourth question. Um, where does this invalid get the power to respond. Now, gang, th this is something that we've already addressed uh, in earlier Wednesday nights, but let me just go over it rather quickly. Um, do you remember in that systematics class, I used the word monergistic? <laughs> Jesus extends a threefold command to this invalid to do the very things that he cannot do. And he is to do them because Jesus told him to do them. But the power to do them, and, and this is so important, the power to do them does not rest in the invalid. You remember the story we told about, I mean, not, we, I didn't tell it, John told it in chapter 11, about Lazarus, and he goes to the cemetery and he says, Lazarus, come forth. And I said to you rather jokingly, and I'd say it to you again jokingly, uh, Lazarus is not in the, the, um, the, inside the tomb contemplating what he's going to do. Well, let me think. It's really kind of nice and cool in here. It's been hot in Judea, and you know, I, you know, I don't really kind of want to go out there because the life is messy, and I think I'll just stay here. No, ladies and gentlemen. The power to respond to the command of Jesus Christ is found in the words that Jesus extends, in the command that Jesus gives. Folks, if Christ waited until the sinner sought Him, 
heaven would be empty. Because, ladies and gentlemen, invalids can't seek Him. They don't have the ability to seek Him. They are unable to seek Him. Remember, remember uh, after that rich young ruler confrontation with Jesus and, 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 and the 12 were saying, oh, wait a minute, why did you let that guy go? He's got money, he's young, he's, uh, he's, he's connected. I mean, we need that kind of, go, that kind of person in our movement. <clears throat> and Jesus says, well, you know, it's a rich man going through the eye of the needle thing. And they say, what? What? And then Jesus responds this way. With men... Finish it. It's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. If Jesus waits for you to approach him, you'll never come. So what did he do? He went and got you. Ladies and gentlemen, that's what the gospel should do to us. Produce this sense of everlasting marvel. What? You came and got me? After what I've done? You came and got somebody like me? Why on earth? Because I never sought you. I couldn't. I was rendered incapable by my sin. So, Jesus goes and gets him and issues him this call, this monergistic work of God the Holy Spirit. Um, which produces the response. Ladies and gentlemen, we can do nothing to heal our own spiritual diseases. If we could heal our own spiritual diseases, why do you think all these people are still around this pool? They'd be the beeline out of there. Rejoicing at what wonderful work that they've done to heal themselves. But once this Savior speaks, through the work of the Holy Spirit, there is infused into us life. He raises the dead and we respond. Here's the last, here's the, here's the, the fifth of my questions that I think grow out of this, this miracle. Um, okay, after this whole thing takes place, to what end does all this come? I'm, I'm going to leap over um, to verse 24, and we're going to come back to verse 24 later in the series, but I want you to see it tonight. Verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me 
Look at that next word. Has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has. Not one day will have. Not might have if he endures to the end and, you know, cleans up his act. Once this saving word has been extended to Lazarus or to the invalid or to you, Everlasting life is our present possession. It's not something that we have to wait on while we, they roll us to an eight-foot hole. We are in possession of that eternal life now. To what end does this come? It comes to a new life that is everlastingly and eternally secure. All because of the work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. No other reasons, ladies and gentlemen. Don't give me this who shot John <clears throat> about how you got so fed up with the world and if you didn't get fed up with the world, it's because God has extended some kind of saving word to you. Folks, enduring to the end, which you all must do, enduring to the end is not a condition for your salvation. Enduring to the end is an evidence that you have it. You make it to the end? It's because God started this work in us. He who has begun this good work in us will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. And he doesn't start a work and then not finish it. So, if you turn your back on all this tomorrow... It just means you didn't have it today. But if you got it today, you're going to make it to the end. And you're going to love doing it. It's going to be your delight to grow more and more like the Savior of ours. Because we see life working, not that it's pain-free, but it works better and better the more I become like him. He called me into this thing and then he's making me into his image and my life is improving. Did somebody say they had some complaints? Oh, ladies and gentlemen, all of the riches of grace and the beauties of grace are to be found not in who you are or what you've become. The beauties of grace are to be found 
in the triune God who has performed a work in us. That will last forever. So, those of you who took my systematics class, did you see it? It's all there in this one little miracle. It's all there. See how much time you wasted coming to my class? You should have just mastered the miracle of John 5. But all that I taught you there is right here. Is that not glorious? What a book! What a Savior. Let's quit. Heavenly Father, we glory in this thing that we enjoy. The, the message that you demand perfect righteousness and then you went and provided it for us through the finished work of Jesus Christ and then you came and got us. Father, we're not disturbed because everybody around that pool wasn't saved. We're enchanted that anybody around that pool was saved. And the enchantment goes on when we consider our own stories. Us? Me? After what I've done? You have seen fit to save? We glory in you, O oh God. Might the thrice holy God get from us all that he deserves a lifetime of praise and thanksgiving. We pray, of course, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.